It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, December 30th, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. A year of first for the U.S. Congress in 2023. Whether it was McCarthy or they're going to elect Johnson. Oh, today it's Steve Scalise. You had no idea what was going on. Oh, my gosh, the government might shut down, too. Oh, my gosh, they might hit the debt ceiling. And then you have this George Santos stuff going on. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Just like the overturning of Roe fired up Democrats ahead of last year's midterm elections, the party may be hoping some of 2023's Supreme Court rulings on race and student loans will fire up the base in 2024. Those are really assaults designed, as you suggested, to get voters riled up and to erode public confidence in the court. That is not unprecedented, but... It, it certainly hasn't been seen in this kind of, with this kind of intensity in a long time. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. When this was the outcome of the first vote of the U.S. House this year, back on January 3rd, we knew it would be an unusual year for Congress. A speaker has not been elected. It would take 14 rounds of balloting over four more days before then-Republican leader Kevin McCarthy won enough GOP support to become speaker in an early morning vote, the longest speaker election since before the Civil War. Because it took this long, now we learned how to govern. So now we'll be able to get the job done. By October, McCarthy was ousted. The first ever Speaker of the House removed mid-Congress by a vote to vacate the chair. So far, halfway through this 118th Congress, we've witnessed censures and expulsion in the beginning of another impeachment. What we haven't seen, a lot of major legislation. Fox News senior congressional correspondent Chad Pergram reviews the year that was on Capitol Hill. You know, we knew it was going to be a rocky road and probably take at least a few votes before they elected a speaker. We thought it was going to be Kevin McCarthy. It ultimately was Kevin McCarthy, but we didn't know that until the early hours of the morning on Saturday, five days later, as I say, when he finally got the votes to be elected Speaker of the House. And that kind of portended a lot about what was going to happen this year in Congress, because guess who's not the speaker anymore? Kevin McCarthy. He's done. I mean, he didn't even last nine months. There was an unprecedented vote in October to extract him from the speakership, and they didn't get much done. I mean, there are a little more than 30 bills now. We keep seeing that President Biden has signed, uh, uh, you know, uh, an additional bills into law here. But uh, when they left just uh, about a week and, and change ago, they were down at 22, which is one of the most unproductive Congresses in memory. And, uh, you know, the only things of consequence that they really passed into law, two bills to avoid government shutdowns, which basically were just punts, and then a bill to suspend the debt ceiling. And this is kind of an unmanageable group here that Kevin McCarthy has with this narrow majority. That's why he wasn't able to get things done. You know, that there were predictions in the fall and, and the summer of 2022 that they were going to have a 40, 50, even 60 seat majority. And they barely hung on by a thread. And that's why it's really hard to get anything through the Congress. And that tells us a lot about 2023, but also foreshadows 2024. As we look back on this past year and You've covered Congress longer than I have, and it feels like I've been here forever. How, how are you going to remember this year? 
it just was topsy-turvy all year long. I mean, even the most basic decisions that they were going to do A versus B, you know, were changed radically within a few minutes, hours at times. Just uh, an insane legislative schedule, a lot of hurry up and wait. I think some of that was dictated by Kevin McCarthy, and that was kind of his style, and maybe the fact that he just didn't have the votes on a lot of things, so he didn't quite know what he wanted to do. A lot of times his staff didn't know what he wanted to do because nobody knew what to do. In fact, sometimes his staff was not even uh, getting back with you because, again, there was no answer to be had. And then Republicans burning through three speaker candidates, which tells you a lot. They basically, you know, burned through Steve Scalise. Tom Emmer, you know, the the whole leadership team here. So all the people who they picked as their leaders starting in November of last year and then the speaker race, which we talked about in January, those people basically got a vote of no confidence all through that speaker's race. You know, the exception being Jim Jordan, who who probably performed the worst, actually, after his votes for, for speaker uh, failed on the floor. You know, he's still the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, and we'll hear a lot about him in 2024 as they attempt to go ahead with an impeachment inquiry for President Biden. But, I mean, that just demonstrates that you, you know, on the Republican side of the aisle, you have a lot of members who are really good about shouting for the mountaintop and telling you what they're against. They can tell you a little bit about what they're for, but a lot of things they're for don't have legislative legs or the traction. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day and they said, you know, right now as we go into the potential of two government shutdowns in the first part of 2024, you're staring at uh, Republicans saying, well, they have to, you know, cut a bill that, you know, adheres to these conservative uh, principles, et cetera, and, and certain spending levels that some on the right really want. The problem with that is, Jared, is they don't have the political capital. They're making demands without having the political capital or the votes. You know, I would say it's about the math to make good on these things. And that's the problem. You know, they, they kind of overpromised in their campaigning and in their rhetoric that they exude here and there, but in terms of being able to execute it, not much. And that's why you see a lot of focus on President Biden. You see a lot of focus on Hunter Biden. You see a lot of focus on uh, Ivy League uh, presidents. Again, not saying mm-hmm. that some of those things aren't worth it, uh, maybe investigations. But it's not legislation. Or, right, exactly. It's different because those are the things they can do and, right. and make some, you know, get some residents on, frankly. The other thing that has struck me about 2023, and I'm curious, again, to kind of look back uh, on your history of covering Congress is, you know, there's this old joke about a, a freshman lawmaker coming into the cloakroom and, and asking where the other party is because he wants to see the enemy. And, and the seasoned uh, lawmaker mm-hmm. says, well, the other party's not the enemy that the Senate is. Um, there's always been this rivalry between the House and the Senate. But that's really been on display this year in a way that is unusual. I mean, you haven't even seen a lot of cohesion between like Mitch McConnell and Republican leaders in in the House. Right. You, you know, he was certainly is that a, is that a new alike. dynamic. It is somewhat because everybody used to sing from the same hymnal. Now it's everybody has their own hymnal, you know, and and the hymnal that Mike Johnson sings from, we don't even know a lot yet because he's still a little bit untested. You know, he's just had the job since late October, and I think he's still trying to figure it out. That's a problem, and I think, you know, it's not like, you know, Kevin McCarthy had been in the leadership for years. He was a known quantity to Mitch McConnell. Mike Johnson, you know, I'm not certain that there was much communication ever between Mike Johnson and, and, and Mitch McConnell until he became yeah. the Speaker of the House, and certainly not Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader. You know, I mean, I mean, th- this yeah. happens sometimes. It's not like all these guys know one another. You kind of know the people in your lane. Uh, one of the reasons that Mike Johnson became the Speaker 
is because he was the vice chair of the Republican conference, and he had also been uh, for some time the chair of the Republican study committee, which is the largest block of conservatives in the House. And so he had a lot of relationships there, but not with the Senate and certainly not with the two leaders across the building. It also seems that the Senate, at least the Republicans in the Senate, have been a lot more willing to criticize former President Trump, who, listen, is right now the prohibitive favorite to win the Republican nomination. Like, barring some unexpected results, I think, in some of these early states, Trump could be the nominee for the Republicans. And and Senate Republicans haven't really been, is the word comfortable with that? And and I'm just curious what that means now as, Uncomfortable is probably a better word for it, yeah. Nominees generally try and set the agenda for their parties in Congress. And I just wonder, given what we've seen in 2023, what that dynamic then looks like between the House Republicans who have been much more pro-Trump and supportive of the former president than Republicans in the Senate. Well, there's probably going to be calls, uh, you know, from some of these Senate Republicans who are more aligned with uh, with uh, former President Trump. And as he gets going on the campaign trail here to you know, maybe get rid of Mitch McConnell at some point, certainly if we get into 2025. I mean, you know, there is no love lost between Mitch McConnell and uh, and former President Trump. And, and you, you, you do have a faction of newer Republicans who are more aligned with some of these House Republicans, I think, in some some cases. Uh, J.D. Vance from Ohio, maybe Eric Schmidt from Missouri, um, who are more willing to kind of, uh, you know, stick their neck out on some of these issues. I mean, they have kind of... Uh, you know, played their cards close to the vest. I mean, you know, Rick Scott ran against Mitch McConnell, the Republican senator from from Florida last year for the leadership position. And uh, there's a faction about 10 or 11 right there, uh, you know, who aren't uh, completely in Mitch McConnell's camp. And so when it comes down to, you know, former President Trump, again, we're going to have awkward conversations in the hallways with people. Oh, I didn't see the rally. Oh, I don't read the tweets or the posts, not, not the tweets anymore, the posts on the you know, social, tr- yeah. social, you know, you know, if, if Congress were in session right now, I, I mean, I would find it comical to see who would, uh, you know, come up and say, did you not see what the president said on the Christmas Merry Day? Cr- the Merry Christmas post. Yeah. in hell. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't see that. You know, come on. That was everywhere. And, you know, it was one thing to do that for the first term. Now it's unavoidable. I mean, I mean, President Trump, he cast such a long controversial shadow. And this is where Republicans in the Senate, some of them are not, they're unwilling to, you know, engage with him. They see what happened. And there are some Republicans in the House who are like that, too. But it's mostly in the in the Senate, at least those in the House, those who are uncomfortable with him try to hide that a little bit because they know how their districts are. And they know that there are certain factions of Republicans in their district who are aligned with former President Trump, and they don't want to get on the wrong side of the street there. I want to talk a little bit about the Democrats, because there was another massive changing of the guard in 2023, and that was in Democratic House leadership, which, what, for the first time in two decades was not led by, I guess we're calling her now Speaker Emeritus, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Hakeem Jeffries now leading the opposition party in the House. Um, How did he do it in that? It seemed like initially him and Kevin McCarthy got along pretty well. They were, you know, similar generations. They came in Congress roughly around the same time. They seem to get along pretty well with one another. He has kind of been sitting back, I think, and watching what's happening in the House with a little bit of his amazement as well as, as he takes on this new challenge of trying to keep a pretty small Democratic margin uh, in lockstep. 
Yeah, yeah, he certainly will have his own problems, too, because there are divides in his uh, caucus as well, maybe not as noticeable in some instances, in some, and we can talk about those in a few minutes here, uh, as the Republicans. But what you saw there was kind of this velvet revolution in the House of Representatives going from in the Democratic Party, going from Nancy Pelosi, who had led the Democrats for practically two decades in the House. And, you know, some people I would have forecast this a while ago that this might be a big leadership fight. But it was like, you know, Hakeem Jeffries handed the gavel off to him. Catherine Clark, the the Democratic whip from Massachusetts, there was never hardly any question about it. And what you really saw there is California declining in its clout in politics, because think about this. Mm-hmm. January 3rd, they lost their first speaker from California, Nancy Pelosi. That's when her term was up as speaker. Kevin McCarthy. We even talked about then Dianne Feinstein passing away after 30 mm-hmm. years in the Senate and New York rising. Chuck Schumer was already the majority leader from Brooklyn, and then Hakeem Jeffries. In fact, they live just a few blocks apart in Brooklyn. Yeah, I think uh, Jeffries is 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 uh, Schumer's congressman. Yeah, it's right there. I mean, it's 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 remarkable. Uh, so so that that's you know kind of tells you a lot about the party. You know, the other thing that I think is is interesting in this is this is where, and I remember having a very frank conversation around this time last year about Democrats and why they lost the House. And and they lost the House for two reasons. They lost seats in California, and they lost seats in New York. Mm-hmm. New York, as they tried to kind of overplay their hand, and the districts that were drawn by an outside master uh, didn't favor the Democrats. They favored the Republicans, which is why uh, the House is really in play, especially with some of these New York districts going into 2024. Mm-hmm. And ironically, if you think about now. it... Yeah, but, 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 but look at this. You know, you had... Multiple New Yorkers with gavels in when they had the majority, um, you had, uh, you know, Jeffries, obviously, as the as the chair of the Democratic caucus. You had Schumer as the as the top Democrat in the Senate. Uh, you had Greg Meeks, the chair of the Foreign uh, Affairs Committee at the time. Elliot Engel had chaired it before. I mean, I mean, you know, there's a lot of people. Nidia Velasquez, Small Business Committee, you go on and on and on. And they didn't take care of their own business in New York. Otherwise, they would be in the majority. I do think the Democrats in the House have, have kind of learned that lesson the really hard way because they would be in the majority right now. It's amazing and almost stunning how close Republicans came after these prognostications of 40, 50, 60 seats that they came to almost not winning the House. And it would be a very different Congress, frankly, had the Democrats won those seats, especially in New York, and to a slightly lesser degree in California. And maybe there's some, uh, you know, attention maybe to focus on former Speaker Nancy Pelosi there. But but again, back to Hakeem Jeffries. You're right. There was a good relationship there with Kevin McCarthy, did not see eye to eye on many things, but it was more than cordial. McCarthy had a terrible relationship with Nancy Pelosi. And I think that he specifically went in trying to say, okay, I'm going to do this a little bit different with a new guy here. Hakeem Jeffries invited him to certain meetings and things, and 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 so there there was uh, there was more you know cordiality there between those two. Uh, it's unclear where that stands right now with with Mike Johnson and Hakeem Jeffries. Again, you know Jeffries was in leadership, McCarthy was in leadership before Mike Johnson kind of came out of the ether there. So that's still developing. The problem that Hakeem Jeffries is going to have going forward here is how does he deal with these factions that he has, especially over, say, the Middle East, where you have pro-Israeli 
you know, APAC aligned members of Congress, Brad Schneider, for instance, from Illinois, Debbie Wasserman Schultz from from Florida. And then you have more progressive left wing members who are talking about, you know, look, we need to have a ceasefire in the Middle East. Uh, We've spent too much money funding Israel. What about the human rights of the Palestinians in Gaza? And you're hearing this from people like Cori Bush and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And and at some point, that dam might break. I mean, Democrats are not as divided as Republicans. But on that issue, that is a fascinating schism that's developing in the Democratic Party that nobody prior probably to October 7th saw. Uh, We might have seen it uh, in a general sense, but not in a specific sense. And this is where you're you're getting into these questions of anti-Semitism. This is why Rashida Tlaib, the Democratic representative from Michigan, you know, Palestinian-American, the first Palestinian-American uh, woman to ever serve in the Congress. She was censured by the House for some of her comments uh, that people viewed as anti-Semitic, talking about from the river to the sea. So this is something Let- that Hakeem Jeffries or other Democratic leaders, uh, you know, well into the future are going to have to grapple with. There is a, a new divide there. And if it starts to branch off into other issues besides the Middle East or war, uh, that could be a big problem for them. Let's finish uh, our year in review with one more bit of uh, New York intrigue. And that was obviously the year uh, that was for George Santos, Um, certainly a colorful member of Congress. Uh, His biography quickly unraveling as he took office and then a lot of ethics uh, inquiries and, and federal indictments come forward. He is ousted, actually expelled from Congress this year, which is, again, just a historic type of, of event, something that we so rarely see in the United well, States House. Well, again, you see, um, this is this is how extraordinary a year it was. Every day was like the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl up here. Yeah. I mean, you know, whether it was McCarthy or they're going to elect Johnson. Oh, today it's Steve Scalise. You had no idea what was going on. Oh, my gosh, the government might shut down, too. Oh, my gosh, they might hit the debt ceiling. And then you have this George Santos stuff going on, which we've not seen We've seen charlatans in Congress before. I, I mean, it's Congress. No surprise there. But I stretch the you know limits of my imagination and, and mind to, to remember anyone quite like George Santos uh, in Congress, at least in, in modern congressional history. Um, and think about the reasons why he was expelled. He's been indicted. He will mm-hmm. face trial early in the in the new year here. Mm-hmm. He's been, you know, not convicted. Which is significant because if you look at the House had only ever expelled five people prior to George Santos. That's Mm -hmm. remarkable, Jared, if you think about it. Yeah. A couple of members of the Confederacy. Okay. And then after that, you had two who had already been convicted and did not leave. Ozzie Myers from Pennsylvania, who's still alive, by the way, Democrat, and and Jim Traficant, uh, Democrat from Ohio in 2002. Only five members. And, And I talked about just the rockiness with that. I mentioned censure with Rashida Tlaib just a few minutes ago. They censured three other members, uh, two other members this yeah. year, a total of three for the year. I mean, it just it just never ended up here in terms of the, uh, the, 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 you know, the infighting. You know, Jamal Bowman, the Democrat from New York. New York's coming up a lot in this conversation, <laughs> pulling a fire alarm. And then, yes. you know, uh, being uh, being convicted of, of doing that, you know, he kind of got a slap on the wrist uh, from the judge. Yeah. And... He was censured. Adam Schiff, uh, the Democratic congressman from California, for handling uh, the, the the Russia Gate investigation a couple of years ago, and he was the chairman of the Intelligence Committee. And a few years ago, you know, this was the other thing that I was struck by. Charlie Rangel, 
prior to you know what's happened in the past couple of years, he was censured for some pretty serious ethics violations yeah. in 2010. Yeah. Had been the chair of the Ways and Means Committee. Korean War hero was left on the battlefield to die. Tremendous American story with Charlie Wrangle. Well, you turn around, and I remember the day that he was censured in the House. The vote was bipartisan. It was kind of a divided vote, but they voted to censure him. And this is the form of discipline that's one below, uh, you know, expulsion. uh, uh, Expulsion. That's right. You have to, in most cases, come down to the well of the House, stand before the Speaker. The Speaker reads the resolution, hits the gavel. Uh, Nancy Pelosi really did not want to do this. This was a, a sad day for her, a sad day for the House. This is back in late 2010. She does it. Wrangle came. He stood with his arms folded, you know, his head down. And so when they censured Adam Schiff, it was like a pep rally because Democrats yeah. didn't view this as legitimate. They all like embraced him and they're shouting mm-hmm. and they're Kevin McCarthy couldn't get order. In the case of Rashida Tlaib, if you looked and I had never seen this before, because, again, we've only censured fewer than 30 members in the history of the republic three this year and um it wasn't even in the resolution that she had to stand before the speaker and be admonished uh, again so it's <laughs> it's just amazing how different the year has been in every form i i mean this is you, you know I, 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 each each one of these years seems to be more unprecedented jared and this was certainly one of them and and you know when i look at at what's ahead in 2024 I think it might be even more unprecedented. I want some more years, and you and I have talked about this, that are more precedented. <laughs> you yeah. know, where, where we have would be things nice. <laughs> that are the norm a little bit here on Capitol Hill. Well, Chad, it was a, a heck of a year, and I appreciate uh, covering it uh, alongside you. And, and we'll uh, have a fun one here coming up. So get some rest before then, and we'll talk soon. Likewise, Jared. Thank you. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. This past year, the Supreme Court delivered final decisions on cases justices had agreed to hear, as they do every year, and anger over those decisions may end up being a useful political tool, at least for one party. After the Supreme Court struck down race-based admissions programs at colleges and universities, President Biden encouraged admissions officials to still consider race. Because the truth is, we all know it, discrimination still exists in America. Discrimination still exists in America. Discrimination still exists in America. Today's decision does not change that. It's a simple fact. If a student has, has overcome, had to overcome adversity on their path to education, the college should recognize and value that. The Supreme Court also struck down the president's student loan debt relief program, and people were supposed to start making payments again after a pause during COVID, but Department of Education data shows just 60% of debtors made a November payment. Fox News senior congressional correspondent Chad Pergram spoke with Fox News Decision Desk member and UT at Austin professor Darren Shaw back in July after the justices had reached their decisions. I suppose most obviously the uh, institutional trust um, in the court has been declining, uh, not just as a function of the June and July decisions that we've been talking about, but over the last five or six years. I guess, uh, you know, Republicans have always uh, had a high respect for the court, but it's kind of waned as Republicans generally have lost trust 
in governmental institutions. The court has been a little more resilient than most, but it's even taken a hit amongst Republicans. Uh, what's really changed, though, is the Democrats have gotten less and less enthralled with the court as they perceive the conservative majority as kind of pushed an agenda that they're not particularly comfortable with, right? So those are the kind of broad contours. But then more specifically, these particular decisions, I guess most obviously Dobbs, but then some of the more recent rulings have increased the propensity of Democrats to favor or at least consider favoring proposed reforms of the court. Um, and that's kind of where we are right now. How aggressive do the Democrats want to be in kind of pushing their antipathy towards the rulings of the court? And that's something we've heard here, you know, that they want uh, Supreme Court justices to come and testify before Congress. In fact, in the next couple of days, there's going to be a markup session writing a piece of uh, legislation in the Senate Judiciary Committee to impose a code of ethics on the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, they, they actually don't have to adhere to some of the same uh, strictures of ethics that they do at the lower courts and, and other government officials do. They're kind of on their own here. And I think that's something that Democrats, even if they have trouble legislating that, getting that through the Senate and the House, uh, they can take that to the voters uh, because the court is unpopular. How much of this is an issue as it pertains to who got on the court? You know, Democrats feel like they, you know, didn't get their fair shake when uh, you had the death of Antonin Scalia in February of 2016. And Mitch McConnell was then the majority leader in the Senate. And he said, we're not going to give Merrick Garland, who was the nominee, now the attorney general, a hearing because it's a presidential election year. And then they got somebody else, a Republican justice on the court uh, when President Trump was elected, Neil Gorsuch. We had quite an experience confirming Brett Kavanaugh in the fall of 2018. And then Mitch McConnell appeared to kind of change his tune in the fall of 2020, uh, saying, oh, we're going to run through Amy Coney Barrett just days before the election. Now, of course, Mitch McConnell said, you know, you have to go back to the 1880s to have a Senate of one party opposite the president confirm a justice of a president of the other party in an election year. Uh, you know, so so his 2020 model kind of sinks up a little bit. But a lot of people thought that was a bridge too far because Democrats think that they really kind of got, uh, you know, the screws put to themselves, uh, you know, where they could have had three Supreme Court justices and at least two and they didn't get any. Right. I, I think the Garland situation in particular is really kind of stuck in the craw of, of liberals and Democrats. But it's, it is important to bear in mind there was nothing illegal, nothing unethical about what McConnell did. You could argue that it was dirty politics. I think there's a you know, reasonable argument on those on those counts. But but if you look at what's happened, the, the, you know, there's no question that the court is legitimate. Right. What's happened is that mm -hmm. uh, the Democrats have had kind of a string of bad luck. It's not like the current court reflects 20 years of Republican dominance of the executive, right, where, where Republicans were winning elections overwhelmingly and then appointing conservative justices, right? That was kind of the situation in the 1920s that Franklin Roosevelt, uh, you know, attempted to reform or deal with. And, and you know, when he, he had his court packing scheme and kind of raised the argument about the court not reflecting popular opinion. Well, right now, Republican dominance on the court has kind of been, you know, a bit fluky. Now, I don't mean, I don't mean illegitimate, but a bit fluky, right? Ruth Bader Ginsburg refuses to resign, um, hangs on even though she's, you know, has health problems and allows, um, you know, Donald Trump to win the presidency and then appoint uh, her successor. That, that's been kind of what's happened. Conservative justices have tended to step down and allow Republican presidents to replace them. And, and liberal justices have hung on, um, thinking that the Democrats were going to win the White House. It wouldn't be an issue. And then surprise, surprise, Republicans like Donald Trump end up winning. And, you know, so that's that's been kind of a, a real issue for the Democrats. However, you know, is what I think is difficult and kind of perplexing from a political science perspective is 
the, the current assault on the court by Democrats and by a lot of their media acolytes have gone at the legitimacy of the court. Um, and it's, it's unusual for one institution to sort of question the legitimacy of another. And, mm-hmm. and you're seeing that with aggressive reporting on, um, you know, the behavior of justices on the court, selectively aggressive reporting, I might add, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, focusing on the conservatives, um, the president talking about this is not a, a usual court. They've done more to erode fundamental rights than any court in recent memory. Those are really assaults designed, as you suggested, to get voters riled up and to erode public confidence in the court. That is not unprecedented, but it, it certainly hasn't been seen in this kind of, with this kind of intensity in a long time. Well, you talk about FDR and court packing. You know, he made this, uh, you know, fireside chat. I think this was in March of 1937. And and he really, you know, kind of amped up his charges against the court. And this is uh, something that's similar uh, that President Biden and the Democrats have been doing lately. Uh, and even if they don't get their way at the Supreme Court, they basically have put the Supreme Court on the ballot in 2024. I mean, uh, you know, you don't often get to choose your opponent in sports. But sometimes you can in politics. Uh, And so they have made the court their opponent here, essentially. And these three decisions, affirmative action, uh, student loans, gay rights, uh, they have taken those issues. And those are three legs of the stool of the uh, kind of, you know, Republican, excuse me, the Democratic uh, platform here that that they use. And that's, you know, each are, are key constituent voting blocks there. And if Democrats can use that to their political advantage, that works getting younger voters to the polls, getting minority voters to the polls who feel aggrieved, even if they can't do something uh, about it. Uh, You know, and you talked about the flukiness of this. You know, some Democrats will talk about, you know, President Trump winning in the Electoral College in 2016, but losing the popular vote. President uh, George W. Bush winning in the Electoral College, losing the popular vote in 20 uh, in 2000. And, And so, again, you know, that reflects who got on the court. And that's partly why we have this have this conservative court here. How important, though, is it for Democrats to get into those three voting blocks that I talked about, though, to get people to the polls? I mean, we're kind of in uh, it's summertime now, but this is political spring training where you start to, to try out your issues here and see you know, who's going to play first base, who's going to play second. And that's what they're looking at as they go into 2024. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, there, there's a, a bit of an irony here, which is the decisions have been made. You know, affirmative action is not on the ballot. Um, you know, uh, student loans are not on the ballot. Even going back to the Dobbs decision, abortion is not on the ballot. But you're right. It's it's an attempt to kind of tap into outrage or to or, or to create or harness outrage over these particular issue um, decisions to cobble together a constellation of voters that can help the Democrats win in 2024. Because the the big issues right now, uh, inflation and prices, um, immigration, crime parental control over uh, school curriculum, stuff like that. Those all, those are the, you know, four of the top six issues. Those are all kind of Republican issues. And what the Democrats did in 2022 very effectively, as you alluded to, was to take little, littler issues, climate change, healthy, not little in terms of substantive importance, but, you know, issues that don't have tons of people saying they're at the top of the agenda, but to use a a, a whole universe of smaller issues to micro-target and to mobilize very, very targeted coalitions. And so you're right. School loans for younger people, affirmative action for minority populations, et cetera. This is kind of the playbook from 2022. I think it probably works, but I'm, I'm, I'm a little skeptical that it wouldn't have worked anyway, right? I'm not so sure outrage over the court's decisions are necessary to get some of those constituencies to the polls. The weakest link, by the way, I think is the, our younger voters. The notion mm-hmm. that younger voters are going to be mobilized around student loans 
I, I think is kind of a, a dubious notion. Um, most people who have student loans, well, not most, a lot of people have student loans. They're actually not in the 18 to 24 year old um, age bracket anymore. They're in the 18 to 29 or in the 30 to 44 bracket. Um, mm-hmm. Many of them went ahead and already, you know, they're looking at this right now and have already paid off appreciable portions of their loans. And they're looking back and saying, well, geez, what, you know, what a sucker I was. I, I could have waited around. There's this sort of issue of fairness that leads to more divisiveness, you know, in, in opinion on this issue than you might expect. Now, whether Republicans can kind of articulate that and, and harness it, I'm not so sure. It's also just a, a low turnout group generally. Let me ask this, too. You know, when you, when you talk about the student loan issue, and I talked to Don Bacon, who is a centrist Republican in a swing district in Nebraska, Omaha, and Mike Lawler, a Republican from New York, uh, you know, upstate New York, beat Sean Patrick Maloney, who was in charge of the Democrats' uh, re-election efforts in 2022 and, and lost himself. Uh, they've, you know, th- those are two swing districts. I talked to both of them. And they both said something very similar here. They said, well, you know, we have a lot of people, especially Lawler said this, we have people in our district, a lot of them didn't go to college. So why should, you know, they have to pay back a loan from somebody else? Are Republicans almost using this as a, a, a class issue? In other words, you have these ivory tower people yeah. off studying poetry and the humanities, and you got people, uh, you know, who, you know, carry a lunch pail and work in the, the skilled trades or something like that. And, and they're really trying to tap into those two groups and say, OK, look at them. They're over there running around a college. Uh, you're, you know, got grease underneath your fingernails and come vote for us. Is, is some of that going on here, too? Ding, ding, ding. Exactly. I think that this issue has always been more complicated than people tend to see it. Um, and the kind of, of you know, we're, we've talked about wedge politics. Well, look, pol- you know, most political issues have two sides. And one of the challenges for Republicans across these issues that we've been talking about, you know, affirmative action, um, abortion, school loans, there are clearly two sides on these issues. And while the Democrats, I think, are kind of tapping into outrage because they've been, for the most part, on the losing side in, in legal terms of these issues recently, there's still public policy issues. And the Republican coalition, as you mentioned, is more blue collar, uh, less well-educated than it has been in a long time. Trump has done that. Um, and this, student loans, is an issue that does tap directly into that. Antipathy towards elites, uh, you know, the ruling class, they, they made a deal. Now they're trying to renege on it. And we're supposed to pick up the tab. That's how I think a lot of those people see it. Well, Darren, it's been great to talk with you. Very educational. I hope we can do this again sometime. My pleasure. Thank you. That'll do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Tomorrow, we take a look back at campaign politics in 2023 and highlight a segment we did on student loan forgiveness with former White House economic advisor Jared Bernstein. I'm Jessica Rosenthal, and thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.